As we begin, a quick update on the Summer to Fall fundraiser. We've raised $772 so far. If you'd like to learn more about this current campaign and some of the giveaways and promotions I'm including, you'll find a link in the show notes at thepermaculturepodcast.com. If you'd like to contribute, go to paypal.me slash permaculturepodcast, or you can drop something in the mail. The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. This is the Permaculture Podcast. I'm Scott Mann, and you're listening to episode 1722, Together Resilient. How do we intentionally live together in community? How do we create the kinds of intentional communities that we want to live in, such as a co-housing relationship or an eco-village? What training should we have if we already live in or are planning to move into an intentional community? These are some of the complex questions my guest, Maikwe Ludwig, author of the recently released book Together Resilient, helps to address in the following conversation. She also shares with us how intentional communities helped create resilience for members, dispels some of the hippie myths about communal living, and gives us an overview of the different types of intentional communities. She also discusses how our shared values or needs bind us together, and also how communities fail. In the end, this interview is about creating cooperative culture so that together we can lean into one another and create the resilience required in order to live with abundance and joy, whatever the future may hold. Enjoy this conversation with Maikwe, and I'll join you again afterwards. Then Maikwe, can you give us a bit of your biography and background, how you came to work with in intentional communities, and then we can take the conversation from there. Sure. So, um, so I was actually raised by an ecologist, and I go back that far because I think it's been a fairly continuous strand for me. And I was involved a lot with various kinds of activism when I was in my late teens and early 20s. And that spanned everything from ecological activism to feminism to what we would now refer to as anti-racism work. And at some point, you know, I got pregnant with my son. And his father had lived in co-ops and had spent some time on a kibbutz when he was in high school in Israel. And he was really sold on got to live in an intentional community. And when we got pregnant, he kind of freaked out and said, um, if we don't do this now, I'm afraid we're never going to do it. And I was adamantly opposed. I think the exact phrase was, there is no way in hell I'm going to move to some stupid hippie commune in the middle of nowhere. I want to go home and hang out with my mom. And so I was kind of dragged kicking and screaming into my first intentional community. But what I discovered when I actually got there was that there was this group of people that were actually doing the things that I was talking about as an activist and trying to sort of lobby for politically. You know, they were living lives that were very sustainable. There was a certain deeper degree of economic equity between people because it was an income sharing group. And the gender relationships were really different, again, because it was an income sharing group and one hour counted as one hour of contribution, regardless of whether it was money making business side of things or domestic labor. And so I got into this environment and I looked around and I went, oh, this is really interesting. And this is actually grounding a lot of the things that I've just been talking about wanting to do in my life. And so that was sort of the beginning of my intentional communities journey. And I've been living in community for the most part for the last 20 years. And that has pushed me in a lot of different and interesting directions, a lot of, you know, a lot of which I talk about in my teaching work and my writing work. And from those experiences in community, what did you learn from that that then led to you writing your book, Together Resilient? Well, I think that there's a lot of different things. In a lot of ways, this book was really just one ginormous brain dump of all the different things that I've been learning for the last 20 years. Some of it was about how cooperation really is the central skill for being able to live sustainably, that when we can come together and we can share resources and share intent and share support with each other, that it opens the door for us to be able to do a lot more in terms of our sustainability goals. So I think that's been one of the main things for me. And along the way, I'd say the, the second biggest theme for me has been understanding that social dynamics are 
absolutely critical that we can't really live together unless we're able to make decisions well together, resolve conflicts with each other, and really start embodying a very different cultural framework. Like we're all raised in the United States to be fairly competitive creatures, and then we get into a situation where we need to start cooperating with each other, and there's, for almost all of us, there's really nothing in our backgrounds that prepares us to do that well. And so I've gotten more and more deeply into looking at and working with social dynamics over the years because I've seen that as the main reason why communities fail. And that's one of the places where your work, I feel, really intersects the current direction of permaculture is because a lot of the work that we're doing, we're well aware of energy decline, climate change issues, and pollution and and other environmental problems. And in many ways, the landscape is well solved. We know how to grow gardens. We know how to get food, but we don't necessarily know how then to take that a step further and to be able to work well with each other, both locally to create a community as well as nationally or internationally to create a network or coalition of people interacting together. It still feels a lot, and this is a conversation I just had with Hannah Apricot-Eckberg, who is the editor and publisher of Permaculture Magazine North America, is that it still feels like a lot of folks are walling off their little portion of the world and holding on to it in a more competitive way, as opposed to where are the ways that each of us excel and specialize so that we can each have our own little niche that we're working on and then be able to pass information and ideas and projects back and forth one another in order that we might all succeed and reach our long-term goals of care of earth, people, and each other. Yeah, that's actually, that's a terrific summary, Scott. Um, You know, I do think that what is at the bottom of pretty much all of the things that are the most important to me, so, you know, sustainability and being able to come from a framework where everybody's voices are really heard, and I, I do a lot of work with consensus in that arena and intentional communities. Like, at the heart of all of those, what makes them all work is a really simple ethic that's just, I care. You know, I care about what's going on in the world. And that can play out in our relationships with our partners and our closest friends, you know, on this really tiny microcosm of our social relationships. It plays out certainly, you know, at the municipal level or at the level of creating an intentional community or creating a transition town project. And it plays out nationally and internationally. But it's all really the same stuff. It's like, are we coming from this competitive, hyper-independence, individualistic framework and worldview and culture, or are we moving towards something that is actually a much healthier cooperative culture where we're able to, like you say, you know, have our niches. This isn't about a melting pot concept where everybody's going to end up looking roughly the same after we've sort of tumbled each other like in a rock tumbler or something. Like that's not what it's about. It's really about finding those niches and finding those places where, you know, we each have something important to be contributing and finding a way to to be cooperative with each other and there's a whole series of skill sets that are involved with actually getting to the point to be able to cooperate with each other and like I say hardly any of those things are taught you know we're not taught to be cooperative and curious we're taught to be competitive and to sort of protect our own and that's actually killing us on the planet at this point. And that's one of the things about my exploration of intentional communities and collectivist forms of political action and things along those lines is that I find that many of the people who are pursuing this route actively, that it's not about an erosion of the individual, but in many ways finding liberty with one another so that we as human beings can be whole and healthy and be able to actually express ourselves even more deeply than to have it as seems to come through in some of the like national level political discourse, where it seems more about wearing all that away and grinding us all down until we're completely equal or level, where really this is about more individuality and spontaneity and ability to be the truest, best form of ourselves. I think that there, that you can see it through that lens. And I think the individuality thing is really interesting in that. You know, we are, according to, there's a, there's a series of cultural measurements called the Hofstede measurements. And the United States is the most individualistic country in the world. We barely nose out Australia for that particular kudos or whatever. And I think that it's important for us to question like how much it's about our individual thing. I definitely see a lot of people that come into community settings or come into like wanting to do political work and they only want to do what they want to do. 
they don't necessarily want to look at like what does the whole need from us and where can I grow into or lean into becoming that because that's actually what the planet needs or what this group needs or what this relationship needs. And I think that we protect our individuality pretty strongly in our culture and that that's actually something that I want to encourage people to at the very least question and be open to the idea that maybe the thing that you're trying to bring is actually not really what's needed and what's of the highest benefit. And that's not about you going away. It is actually about deepening into a kind of, you know, a really deep spiritual growth of service. And, but that's pretty different than just, I'm going to give what I want to give. And if that's not what this space needs, I'm taking my toys and going home. You know? The way that you just expressed that is something that locally we've encountered a lot. And it's, something that's come up in conversations about permaculture within community and where people are going. Someone presented this idea to me, I don't know, maybe two years ago, of the BLAP, which is Boulder, Brooklyn, Los Angeles, Asheville, and Portland. Those are all the places where a lot of folks seem to be heading to because they can go and just immediately plug in with what their skill set is and what they're looking for. They can immediately find it, even though there's been like collective community locally that have said, hey, you know, if you're here and you want to do, you know, start something like Food Not Bombs, we're not the ones who are going to start that because we have projects that we're working on, but we'll help you find partners, find food and do everything else if that's the project that you want to head up. But because there wasn't quite, say, a place for someone to plug into, then they move away to these other communities where it already exists, kind of leaving a bit of a desert for those of us who are still here doing the work. Well, and I think that there's another factor that plays into this, which is economics. And I think that that is simultaneously not what we need to be doing and very understandable because we live in an economic system that doesn't value community and doesn't value, you know, basically all the things that nonprofits are about. We have nonprofits to be making up for the fact that the wider culture doesn't really value those things. And it's really damn difficult to figure out how to feed yourself in this culture right now doing the things that the planet is actually needing. And so, you know, I simultaneously feel exasperated by that, that sort of mass migration to those sort of, you know, progressive hotspots. And also I understand why people are doing that. And I also think that there's an interesting thing in there that relates to race and class where, you know, like Portland is becoming progressively more white and that that's not actually helping Portland have a deep, sense of community that is diverse, you know, that we're pushing people of color out of that city in some pretty significant ways. And, and so I think there's a whole bunch of different intersected pieces there. And so it's complicated. And so I simultaneously understand it and wish that that wasn't what people felt like they had to do in order to, you know, be pursuing right livelihood in some way. It was something that Dave Jackie brought up in a conversation once when we were talking about something similar, because I didn't understand how with how many resources exist within the permaculture community financially and otherwise with land and access to various resources, why it seems to be bottled up, especially generationally. And then Dave said, you know, it's just there is a rational self-interest involved in this process of wanting to make sure that we're taken care of, which I think for me kind of falls back to Maslow's hierarchy of needs and needing to feel secure before we can step into something without understanding the kind of security that community provides. Right. And I think that, you know, the part of what we're fighting against is a lot of stereotypes about community. And, you know, it can be a really powerful tool for personal growth, for economic security, for ecological resilience, for getting our social needs met. And yet you've got to get past the hippie stereotype, which is, you know, that's part of my own story. That was my first reaction when my son's father said, hey, let's go check out this rural community, you know, I kicked and screamed basically because I had taken in those stereotypes. And so I think there's a lot of sort of just general education work that needs to be done to help people understand that, like, it's not really what you think it is or what you're afraid that it is. I think that's a a big chunk of it. And it actually can help you meet those needs that you are desperately trying to meet in your life as long as you're able to move into more of a cooperative framework to do it. And so I think there's a package there that's really hard for people to get over oftentimes. Well, and it's one of the places for me is that, like I read Peter Jenkins' A Walk Across America when I was younger, and that was one of my first interactions with the farm, and his perspective as an outsider kind of painted it in a particular way. 
that was not necessarily appealing to me. And then, of course, as you say, there's this kind of like hippie stereotype for intentional communities or other ones that I'm familiar with have a spiritual component, which is something that, you know, I and others don't connect with. And so can you give us an idea of what the current intentional community community looks like? What kind of places are there and what are the various core ideas that bring people together that we might begin to break down this hippie stereotype? Well, I think the thing is that it's very diverse. You know, it's it's hard for me to paint a picture of like what the typical intentional community looks like because they look like a lot of different things. And I think of it as being on a spectrum of, you know, so if you have this spectrum of like from very mainstream kind of conservative values on one end and very progressive and holistic and probably embodying permaculture values in a lot of significant ways, and that's the whole of America, then the intentional communities movement is a slice of that that tends to lean toward that, you know, progressive, more holistic end of the spectrum. But even within that, you have co-housing communities that are, you know, often considered to be the most middle class and sort of bourgeois of the communities movement where everybody's got their own fully functional home, you know, with with bathrooms and kitchens and guest space and all that kind of stuff. And then uh, you also have access to a common house and you're collectively managing land together. And that's a totally legitimate version of intentional community. But that's really different than like the community that we're working on starting here in Laramie, Wyoming, which is an income sharing, economic justice oriented eco-village with a pretty strong personal growth and, you know, for some of the people in the group, spiritual base to it. And so there's like the, it's still pretty mainstream all the way over to the like, this is a really radical departure from the mainstream culture. And you have really everything in between. You've got student cooperatives that, you know, often people's first introduction to the communities movement is living in a co-op as a college student. So there's an abundance of student co-ops in the United States. And then there are communities, like you say, that are spiritual in orientation, that are either traditionally religious, you know, monasteries and nunneries are intentional communities that are coming from usually a little more conservative religious base, or even if they're social justice oriented, they're still sort of religious in nature. And then you've got your ashrams and your sort of freelance spiritual communities that aren't really part of like a deep spiritual tradition, but are more of like the new age spiritual communities. And then you've got eco-villages, which are primarily focused on ecological sustainability. And they set up their systems in lots of different ways. You know, some of them are income sharing. Most of them aren't. I think about 13% of the movement right now is income sharing. You know, there's groups that are really just a land trust where it's an 100-acre property that's broken up into 5 to 10-acre plots. And people are basically doing homesteading with neighbors who are also doing homesteading. And so the movement is really, really diverse. And I encourage people that if you get hung up on thinking that it is one thing and that that stereotype or that perception that you have is keeping you from checking it out further to just look a little deeper and look at like, is there something that is close to what is calling me and what's interesting me? Because there may very well be something out there that is really similar to what you're being called toward, but it doesn't fit those stereotypes. Well, thank you for that survey and kind of overview of what we might find in exploring intentional communities a bit further, because that was certainly interesting for me, because I never thought of a student co-op as a form of intentional community. (laughs) Yeah, basically, if you're living together based on shared values or shared needs, you're doing an intentional community thing. Several years ago, I visited a student co-op that was really an eco house, if you will, here in Carlisle, Pennsylvania at Dickinson College. There were a bunch of different students who were living together. They were using consensus for decision-making, agreeing to do things like take three-minute showers in order to reduce their usage of water. They had vermicomposting and a lot of other systems set up. I'll have to reach out and see if that house is still there and go have a talk with them. Yeah, nice. And it's like, how is that not an intentional community? Yeah. And I think it's my own, I mean, even having visited various folks who are living together intentionally, having done it myself, there's like this narrow window of exposure that kind of pushed a certain vision of what they would or should be. And so expanding that a bit further to see just how much is actually out there, even a monastery or a nunnery. With that idea, because 
of my interest in permaculture and your mention of eco-villages, what are some of the ways that you see that eco-villages really help to model sustainability and some of the different practices that come in to lower one's ecological footprint by being intentional together in community? Well, I think the first thing is something that really all intentional communities have in common to some degree, whether they're using it to its fullest extent or not, and that's resource sharing. You know, for instance, Dancing Rabbit Eco Village, where I lived for eight years, and that features pretty big in the um, in the book. They're the first community that I profile with some depth. You know, they have a car share program where they're sharing four cars for about sixty adults, and you know, at that point, you're you know, your carbon footprint is lower already simply because you're not participating in the manufacture of, you know, what is like close to a one-to-one ratio between cars and humans in the U.S. And so that's a radical reduction in the manufacturing footprint for that community right away. But then you also get things like people doing errands for each other. So there's a guy who goes to town every Thursday and he will happily do bank deposits and do little shopping trips and get cat food for you and whatever. And then people who need to go into town for doctor's appointments know to make those on Thursday because they know for sure that there's a ride to town on that day. And so you end up with, instead of seven trips going back and forth to town that day to get seven different families' needs met, you have that one trip going into town. So there's a lot of ways that getting together and you know, resource sharing with the cars combined with having a cooperative system in place to, you know, be coordinating the use of those cars can make a tremendous difference in terms of dropping the ecological footprint. And that's just in one area, just with the cars. But the numbers are pretty impressive, actually, for Dancing Rabbit in that area. So, you know, obviously, fuel for vehicles is a big part of our carbon footprints in the U.S. And they use about 6% of the American average of fuel to run the vehicles. And so that's an example of something where a community has really taken that combination of like physical infrastructure and social infrastructure and really leveraged it to bring down their ecological impact. So I think it's really that combination of resource sharing, social systems that support that resource being shared really well And then the intention behind it, because that's what gets you to have the conversation in the first place. So I think those three pieces are where eco-villages offer sort of like a little social laboratory to be able to really figure out how do we live more ecologically soundly. And you'll notice it's without cutting yourself off from the modern world. It's not like they don't have cars and they don't ever get to go to town and they don't shop. You know, I mean, all those things are still happening, but they're happening within a very different system and framework. Is that different system and framework based on individual decisions by community members? Well, I mean, I think it's a combination of community decisions and individual decisions. You know, for instance, Dancing Rabbit has a, you know, one of the few very, very solid rules at Dancing Rabbit is that you can't own a personal vehicle. And so that's a community level decision that also screens members out. Like you're not gonna join Dancing Rabbit if you are super, super, super attached to owning your own vehicle still. That's just not something that you're gonna choose to do. And there's also all of those little, like the small daily choices that go into it of like, so I'm gonna not just spontaneously go to town, I'm gonna look at the car sign out and see if somebody's going to town tomorrow and actually join my trip with theirs. So there's a lot of very small human decisions that go into it, but it is also community decisions. And I think one of the mistakes that a lot of intentional communities make is that they don't want to be too strong about what their values are or about what box they're drawing for their members to live within. And that makes it so that you end up with people who aren't very aligned with whatever the purpose was that originally brought you together. And I think Dancing Rabbit is an example of a community that did a really good job of drawing a really clear box. And, you know, they're not regulating everything. They haven't set up a really oppressive system or something where people can't breathe within it. But they were really clear about, like, here's where our lines are. And if you're going to be part of this project, you need to be willing to color within those lines and actually support the mission of this community, which is really an experiment in how do we live as ecologically responsibly as possible. 
and by setting up some ground rules from the beginning that allows folks to kind of self-select out or in, depending on whether or not they want to agree to that community's social norms and mores. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a big thing that you see that the communities that have really been successful, that's one of the things that they have in common. And one of the questions that I had in reading your book and knowing that this conversation was coming and having been part of the groundwork for an intentional community that ultimately dissolved is what do you feel are some of the required practices to get started and also to continue something? And I'm wondering if, if having some ground rules agreed by the founding members is a part of that. Yes, for sure. I mean, I think that there's three, well, there's three areas that I'm going to highlight at the moment. There's a, there's a lot to it and there's a whole chapter in the book talking about various aspects of what it takes to really successfully start a community. But I'll highlight three of them. One of them is having a clear vision. And, you know, sometimes founders think like, oh, well, I'll wait until there's 15 or 20 people that are showing up for our meetings to figure out what our vision is so that people have better buy-in to the vision. And it actually backfires frequently where you end up with 15 or 20 people that are kind of aligned and you spend the next six years fighting about what exactly it is that you think you're doing together. And so I think that it's a lot smarter to actually get together a group of somewhere between three and eight people and do that original visioning work and be clear about both what's essential to you. And like, if you don't have X, this is not going to be your community. You want to make sure you include that stuff in the vision and also getting clear about like, what do we not care about? And, you know, what are we totally fine leaving up to individuals to figure out for themselves? And so one example is, you know, like the car sharing thing, like, is that something that's essential to your community or not? You know, and then pockets, if you end up with 60 people in your community and 10 people are really all about car sharing, they can still do that in a smaller pocket. But if you're clear about that kind of thing at the beginning, then I think you set yourself up for better success because you're going to end up with a more aligned group of people showing up. So I do think that the vision thing is really important. The second thing is not trying to dodge the legal and economic questions. And we have a tendency in the, you know, at least the progressive left to really, you know, have strong resistance to lawyers and legality and legal structures and to have really strong resistance to actually talking about money because, you know, capitalism has been such a damaging thing for so many of us that there's actually trauma involved with getting into conversations about the finances. And yet, you know, just like you need people to show up and do the physical work of building a community, you also need a certain amount of financial capital in order to get one of these things off the ground. And so I think not avoiding those conversations that we often want to avoid is one of the things that I think makes a really big difference. And then the third thing I wanna highlight is just the social dynamics, you know, get training find people who understand what cooperative culture means and are good at conflict resolution and can teach your facilitators how to facilitate a meeting that includes everybody's voices, whether that's consensus or not that your community decides to use. You want to have some way that everybody feels like they're being heard and that they're actually part of the conversation. And I can't emphasize enough how important training is from people who have been through that and you know, and understand that really any intentional community is doing pretty deep social change work because cooperation is so foreign to us and, you know, understands how to hold a group through the process of learning how to cooperate with each other. With that third point and several things you've mentioned earlier about training and needing skills and being able to make decisions together, what kind of a of a reskilling do you see people needing to go through in order to live or create a community? Well, it's a good question and it's a complicated one. And, you know, I do workshops on this stuff and my ideal is to actually spend two days answering that question with a group of people rather than, you know, doing it in a couple sentences. But I, you know, I think that some of the core things with that are, you know, when you Bump into disagreement with someone, and this is actually great advice for social media as well. When you bump into disagreement with somebody, do you get defensive or do you get curious as your first response? And curiosity is actually 
one of the skills that I emphasize the most with people because I think that our tendency is to just cut off any disagreement, whether it's major disagreement, like we're talking about abortion, or it's minor disagreement, like you want the house painted purple instead of yellow. You know, we tend to get really, really intense in those disagreements and back ourselves into a state of defensiveness rather than getting curious about why somebody who is presumably also a rational human being has come to a really different conclusion than you've come to. So it's things like that. It's also things like compassion, which, you know, people who have a sincere and non-dogmatic spiritual practice will vouch for the power of just being able to lean into compassion instead of judgment for other people. And it's one of the cooperative culture skills as well. Yeah, so I think it's things along those lines that we're talking about and that tend to be very deeply embedded in us from that more competitive culture that we've all been raised in. And can you speak more to what you just said, that phrase cooperative culture? It sounds like that's a much bigger, broader umbrella that I'd like to know a little bit more about. Yeah, it is actually. So again, I I talk a lot about spectrums. So forgive me if you hate that analogy, but I'm going to use it again. So at the one far end of the spectrum is the sort of hyper-competitive and individualistic mainstream culture in the U.S. And then there's a really far extreme as well that's kind of hyper-cooperative that is almost like requiring martyrdom from people and it lacks discernment to some extent. It says like everybody's perspective is always equally valid and important and all that kind of stuff and it really lacks a certain degree of discernment. And it's what people are afraid of, I think, with things like intentional communities, like I'm just going to get swallowed into this group and we're going to be expected to be doing groupthink and, you know, all that kind of stuff where the individual is expected to completely disappear. And what I'm talking about with cooperative culture is actually something more in between those two, which is really about, you know, honoring different perspectives, but having really good discernment about like what's actually the relevant thing that we need to be talking about. It's about collaboration, even with people that you have minor disagreements with, or, you know, like being able to really find allies, like within our movements, you know, we see a lot of infighting on the left between like groups, you know, the the permaculture people and the sustainability people sometimes don't get along very well because they have different ways of framing things. And so we start fighting with each other about those details instead of getting it that like, hey, we're actually all headed in the same direction here and we should be able to collaborate with each other. And, you know, and it's things like empathizing with circumstances when things go poorly for people, like our culture tends to figure out how to capitalize on it when bad things happen to other people. You know, I see a lot of business plans that are disaster relief business plans. And it's not really about relief. It's about making a profit off of people. And so being able to actually empathize with and show up in support of other people's you know, when somebody is suffering deeply, being able to show up and actually figure out what do they need from me right now in order to get through this thing. So there's a whole varied package of things that all sort of interrelate and intersect and almost all of them fly in the face of standard American culture. That's quite a lot to work with and through to get to a point where we can live with intent with ourselves and others. Well, fortunately, it's an iterative process. You know, we get into community and if we're open to learning and growing, that process of being in community shapes us and starts to change how we think about things. And then as our mindsets change, we can then, you know, put that to work to sort of help shape our communities and help move our communities toward being more cooperative and more empathy-based and more care-based. And I think this is lifelong work really. I mean, I, I expect to die not having rooted all that hyper-competitiveness out of my own system, and that's okay, because I'm moving in that direction of, you know, being able to help, you know, nurture a cooperative culture transition. But yeah, it's a lot. It's one of the reasons why I like permaculture when it comes to big issues like this, is that it does take a generative, multi- and intergenerational approach to things. So it's not something that we can expect to solve or resolve in five years or even 10 years, though it does feel like there's a lot of pressure to get something going with the climate disruption that's currently happening and what's going to be coming by the end of the century. Yeah, I think all of that is true. And I think one of the most important permaculture principles for me in terms of applying it to social systems is that ability to step back and observe and 
that's where our discernment comes from, is being able to actually observe what's happening, what's working, what's not working, and not giving up because the first thing that you try isn't working. I think that's true with physical systems. It's also true with social systems. And, you know, if we cannot not get too discouraged by the fact that not everything works and not every conversation goes well and not every decision is perfect, like that's okay, but what can we learn from that? And that's been a lot of my journey over the last 20 years has been just getting better and better at observing what's happening and course correcting and shifting how I talk about things and trying to deepen into what is really a journey rather than just a one-shot deal. So I'd encourage you who perhaps didn't have a like best experience in community before to try it again. And that is something that I myself and some others continue to talk about and figure out what our desires and needs are to spend time together to get to know each other more deeply so that we can figure out, do we want land? Or do we want to be living in an urban environment where we can get a very you know, be house rich, but land poor or the other way around where we're building and kind of all talking and flowing and moving through this as we think about taking another shot at it. Sounds like you're asking the right questions. We're trying. <laughs> well, and it's with anything that comes to an end, whether it's a, a relationship between two people, a job or a community, being able to reframe it not as a failure, but as a learning experience makes a big difference. And I find that it removes a lot of the the anger and the bitterness and things like that that we might feel. And we can still come together and be able to talk about the things that matter and why certain things didn't work and be able to use that to build our next shot. Yeah, Absolutely. You know, it's an interesting phenomenon that, you know, I I hear people say sometimes, well, I tried the community thing back in the 60s and it didn't work. And so they become one of those people that is sort of contributing to this idea that community can't work. And yet it's like, what is it? Something like 60% of business startups fail in the first 18 months or something. I don't think that's exactly the stat, but it's close. And But we don't go, small business doesn't work. You know, we don't write off that whole area of engaging with the world and say like that model is fundamentally flawed. Maybe we should be saying that model is fundamentally flawed, but we don't. And yet with community, it's like we have one experience with it. And then people often really do give up on it and go into this thing of like, well, it just obviously doesn't work. And, and I think that's unfortunate and unfair. And I would agree. There's something about that. Is it survivor syndrome where it's like, I succeeded at this. So it means that somebody else can. I wonder if there's another side to that because if something fails, then it means that all fail. But right, when it comes to business, I think it's something like 90% of all restaurants fail within their first five years. And yet people continue to open restaurants over and over again. We have relationships fail through divorce or just people deciding to go separate ways, yet we still, people remarry or they go into relationships again. So why is it that community gets pushed at arm's length so often? For those folks who want to enter into community for the first time or to keep trying, what kind of goals would you set for folks who are interested in this? What kind of a vision do you have for communities playing in being able to create more resilience for people? I mean, I think there's two pieces to that. One is the, like, what I would say to individuals who are thinking about it. And a lot of that is just like, just like I advise founders to get clear about what you absolutely need and what you can be flexible about. I think I I really encourage individuals to try to figure that out as well. Like what's, what's drawing you to community and what's really making your heart sing when you think about that and like lean into that and then really cultivate not sweating the rest of it, I think is part of the advice for people getting involved, whether they're seeking a community or thinking about starting one. And in terms of the resilience thing, I think the community is how people have survived through the ages. You know, we're in this really weird historical moment where cheap fossil fuels and individualistic approaches to money have sort of created this illusion that we can be fully independent operators and that that's not actually how our forebears have survived over the years. And if you look at countries where you know, and I I hate this language because it sort of implies that we're the pinnacle of civilization or something, but like the developing world where people are literally living on dollars a day, they're doing that because they have community, where they know that they need each other, where, you know, villages still come together and support each other and grow food together and watch each other's goats and, you know, and do all of these just daily things. And so I think community is actually a tremendous tool for really creating resilience when 
those broader systems are not functional. And more and more in the U.S., we're starting to discover that our broader systems are not very functional. So I think that there's you know, a number of things that communities can do. One of them is simply creating a physical infrastructure that is you know, thinking about things like, let's catch water instead of assuming that our wells are still going to be functional. You know, it's like very simple things like that. And then if your cistern runs dry and your neighbors still have water, if you're in a cooperative relationship with them, then you still have access to water. And so it's, you know, the very baseline physical survival stuff is part of it. I think also, you know, humans get pretty miserable and pretty emotionally non-resilient in isolation. And you see that in like mental health statistics in the United States right now. We have terrible mental health statistics. And we're the most individualistic country in the world. I think there's a relationship between those things. And I think when you know your neighbors, when you are getting hugs regularly, when somebody is asking you sincerely, how are you on a regular basis, that is sort of a social support net for people. And we can create that on a small scale without the government needing to be creating social nets for us because they're not doing it anymore. And so I think it's all different layers that, go into what community does in terms of resilience you know and also if you only have to have four cars that you're keeping functional instead of 60 you're going to have transportation longer than your neighbors who their one car breaks down and there's no longer the support system there to fix it it's like very very fundamentally community creates the opportunity for resilience in some very tangible ways well thank you for that i feel like you've given us some principles strategies and techniques to think about what we can experience within community as well as the the give and take required and the benefits of coming together in this way with that in addition to your book which i definitely recommend that people pick up because of the way that you've laid everything out for us not only with the issues at hand but also what we can do to get started are there any other resources that you would guide people towards well it kind of depends on which parts they're the most interested in. I mean, I'm sure that most of your listeners already know about the Transition Town Movement and Transition US is the organization in the United States that does that. There's also the Fellowship for Intentional Community, which full disclosure, I'm on the board of the FIC and and they're actually the publisher of my book. And they are the go-to resource for all things intentional communities, including the online communities directory, ic.org, which has over 1,300 intentional communities listed in it. So I would definitely recommend that. And then there's also a number of organizations in the U.S. that are focused on different sections of the intentional communities. There's NASCO, which is the North American Students of Cooperation, which is mostly student co-ops, but not only student co-ops. There's Co-Housing U.S., which is the group that works with those communities that I was talking about where everybody's got their own sort of standard middle-class setup plus access to common facilities. There is the Global Eco-Village Network of North America, which deals with eco-villages. And there's the FEC, which is the Federation of Egalitarian Communities that works with income sharing groups. So I'd say those are all different resources depending on what your folks are interested in. Thank you for that list and for taking my hodgepodge of questions today. I thought that I was fairly well prepared going into this because of the intentional communities that I visited and spoken with over the years. But then we got started. I asked a few questions and you led me in directions that I didn't realize how much I didn't know about this movement, about the options that are out there. So. Well, I appreciate your um your vulnerability and willingness to say that, that's great. <laughs> There's just so much here and I've dealt, you know, with these individual pieces of conflict transformation and other pieces because of my relationship with the folks at the Possibility Alliance and conversation with Ethan Hughes. And yet there's this big, big world that I need to dig into further. And I realize there are some people now who I need to go visit to understand some of the other models that are available for like urban intentional communities as opposed to rural or suburban. And I really appreciate the places that you've taken my thoughts in our discussion today. Well, consider yourself invited into this movement on a deeper level. I like it. It's just, it's beautiful. And coming from a very large family, you know, I would go to a family reunion where there'd be 60 or 70 people, all of whom I'm related to. These are the people who taught me the stories of, of where I come from and how to cook and how to eat together and to share stories and, and to play music. And of course, you know, my uncles and aunts and everybody like to drink and get into a bit of a row and argue and fight and have a grand old time. And when we were all together, 
like that was always kind of the model that I thought of because then we would invite in our neighbors because they would come join us and other folks around us from the surrounding community. But there's for me a feeling of disconnect from that now that you know my family is all kind of scattered to the four corners my friends are the same way because of our ability to be mobile in society and now there's a choice for those of us who are interested to come together and decide to create a community intentionally with one another and that that is an option and an opportunity that we have what a rich template though that you have in your consciousness having experienced that as a young person i think that's great and you know and the possibility is that you get that plus intentionality and values alignment, which most of us don't get with our blood families. So it's, it's an interesting thing to sort of think about putting together who you've become and what your value sets are now with that childhood experience of that, you know, sort of raucous big gathering that sounds like it was really vibrant. I love that. And as I always like to provide at the end of a conversation, before we draw this to a close, do you have any final thoughts for the listeners? I think I just want to say one other thing. It was one of the things I was thinking about leading up to this interview and sort of contemplating the permaculture principles and how they intersect with my work. And I'm grateful for having gotten to do that because I haven't done that meditation in a while. And one of the things that I was thinking about was the permaculture principle of sharing the surplus. And... I've been deepening into more of a kind of economic radicalism over the last few years. And I just want to encourage folks to think about the possibility that in order to really embody that permaculture principle, that that may be a fundamentally anti-capitalist thing. Because capitalism isn't about sharing the surplus, it's about hoarding that surplus. And so I just want to invite and to join me in that meditation, all of you out there who are listening, and to really look at like what our economic system does and doesn't provide and does and doesn't embody and what it means to us as people who are wanting to embody those permaculture principles. Like I think maybe cooperation is something that we actually need in our economic system in order to really be full-fledged permaculturalists on some level. So, so I just want to invite that as sort of a a last thought, like sort of, you know, leaving the door open for more conversation perhaps at some point, but I, that's what was on my mind this morning. Well, thank you for that. And I'm sure it's something that I'll be contemplating for a while as I continue to integrate all of these various pieces of what creates a truly sustainable and regenerative future together into an ever-growing model for permaculture. So thank you for joining me today, Maikwe, and being a part of that conversation. Yeah, well, thank you, Scott, for inviting me. And that was Maikwe Ludwig, author of Together Resilient. You'll find out more about her at myikwe.net, and her book is available through Chelsea Green. You'll find links to both of those and the resources that she mentioned, such as the Fellowship for Intentional Community, the Global Eco-Village Network of North America, and others, in the show notes. Coming off of this conversation, as you heard with some of my questions, I have a lot of research to do in order to understand the breadth and scope of intentional communities. I came into this thinking that I had a pretty good idea from visiting the Push, and my other friends in Clear Creek, Kentucky, from visiting the Possibility Alliance, some of my reading, my own experiences living at Seppi's place, but there's just a lot of options. And in hearing what she had to say and exploring my own life, I realized that I've co-housed for a good quarter of my life, much of it throughout my 20s when I was living together with friends for various reasons when there were many of us sharing a space together. On more than one occasion, I had three roommates, not including their partners, pets, and others, who were included in the space that I was living in, their friends who would come and go, the different parties we would have, that were all collectively shared within the place that we called home. And I had a similar experience when I was living at Seppi's place, when it was a house for community, and there were always people coming over during the week to drop things off or to say, hey, on the weekends when we were having gardening days or cleanups, the dinners and get-togethers in the evening, where we would just spend some time with each other. And looking back on that, most of my time in community, if we look at it from that co-housing perspective, was really successful. We lived together for a period of time, as intended, and then moved on when the situation changed. But we still had that community experience. And the same goes for Seppi's place. Even though the project as we envisioned it went away, we still learned a lot from it. 
everybody who was involved in it. And I no longer think about that as a failure of community, but as a learning experience. Something to take away from it to understand what my needs are, so that I can, moving forward, based within some of the ideas that Maikwe shared with us today, continue to ask better questions, to get at what my needs are, and what is the appropriate kind of community for me to live in. And that makes me think back to when I was at the Possibility Alliance, how appealing it was, the thought of staying there for another week or maybe another month, and embedding myself further into that community. But as I meditated on it, as part of my morning practices while I was there, coming to understand that that wasn't my place, that it's this time and space behind the microphone, or with a recorder and a camera at our community events, as part of the permaculture movement, talking to and documenting with others, that this is the space that I exist in. It's the place that I feel the most comfortable in, even if the song of community from places like the PA seems so appealing. That's still some time away for me. But in the meantime, I'd still be interested in living in an intentional community with some of my other friends, but just knowing that I need something that's still a little bit more dependent on technology and access to easy travel. But that's my journey with community and what I need. For those of you who are listening who already live in community, what's that experience like? What have you found that your needs are? And how did you find a community that met those needs? Did you have to compromise in order to do so? For those of you who are interested in something like community, are there some spaces that you're interested in that you're looking at? Do they meet your needs? Or are you still exploring what your needs are so you're checking out different communities and getting an idea of what they have to offer and what you, in turn, can offer to them? Wherever you are, Whatever your path on this journey, I'd like to hear from you and know how you would answer those questions. So get in touch. Show at thepermaculturepodcast.com, 717-827-6266, or drop something in the post. The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. From here, the next interview is with Adam Brock, where we discuss his new book, Change Here Now. That will be out on August 17th, ad-free as always, for Patreon supporters, and on August 20th, for global release. Until then, spend each day creating the world that you want to live in by taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.